Hello, this is James Robinson. And I'm Tony Harris. And you're listening to the Supermates Podcast. With your hosts, Chris and Cindy Franklin. Welcome to the first installment of the Starman Chronicles on Justice Society Presents. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Franklin. And I'm Cindy Franklin. And Cindy and I are picking up the long, dormant Starman Chronicles series we used to occasionally run over on our Supermates podcast here in the more appropriate home of the Justice Society Presents Umbrella Show. The series is an index review show of James Robinson and Tony Harris's Starman, which ran from 1994 to 2001, and focused primarily on Jack Knight, son of the original Starman, a Golden Age member of the original Justice Society of America. For those who may have missed our previous eight installments, don't worry. We're going to catch you up to the adventures of Jack Knight and all the previous and successive Starmen in this very episode. In fact, we're going to talk about a comic designed as a jumping-on point for the series. So this all came together quite nicely. Yeah, we couldn't have done it any better unless we just kept doing it. So, uh, But in case you're wondering... The previous installments can be found on these particular episodes of Supermates. Part 1 was in Supermates number 27, Part 2 in episode number 32, Part 3 in episode number 42, Part 4 in episode number 49, Part 5 in episode number 55, Part 6 in episode number 68, Part 7 in episode number 73, and Part 8 in episode number 79, and we will also leave that list in the show notes, so you can follow it. Follow the show over there. Thanks to our friend Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine Podcast Network for getting us that wonderful intro by James Robinson and Tony Harris. Yeah, it, I just could not 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 use that. It's just too great. Uh, our last episode was a Christmas special covering the holiday tale in Starman number 27. But publication-wise, we actually skipped over Starman Annual number 1, which came out two months prior. So we get to cover a Starman number 1 in his first JS Presents episode. So that also worked out well. Yeah. Uh, then we're going to return to the book proper and talk about Starman number 28, which was a time's past about Mikhail Thomas, the blue alien Starman. And then finally, we'll wrap up with that jumping on issue we talked about, Starman number 29. But first, we should probably do a bit of a recap of what's gone on before, courtesy of Starman number 29, and a very convenient entry in the Shay's journal. This was a running text feature in the book, often subplanting the letters page and filling in gaps in the backstory of the immortal rogue turned ally, the Shade. I do have to admit, I, I had trouble reading that because of the font that they used in that. Yeah. And I caught myself saying, okay, just tell me what happened, you know. Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's where I needed bifocals before I got them or what it was, but it was difficult now, to read. Now, in issue number 29, it's printed better and it's bigger. But generally, Generally, though, it's really tiny. Mm-hmm. And I complained about that when we covered it. Now that I've got the DC Universe app, I wonder if digitally, if it looks better. I have not looked at that yet because mm. we haven't come across an issue that's got the usual right. Shades Journal on there. But yeah, I think from now on, I'll be looking at the digital version if we got to read it. So yeah. Uh, in issue number 29, Shade relates how he is an immortal who can control shadows and first came into these powers during the early 1800s in London. He later came to America and fell in love with Opal City. He relocated to the Opal. And although he pursued criminal endeavors elsewhere, he vowed never to commit a crime within its limits. The Shade was an adversary of the first two Flashes, but avoided running afoul of Opal City's costume champion, Ted Knight, a wealthy amateur astronomer and scientist who in the late 1930s developed a weapon called a cosmic rod to fly, shoot bolts of energy, and perform other fantastic feats. Ted donned a costume of red and green and took to the skies as Starman, defending not only Opal City from evil, but also the world as a member of the Justice Society, and also the All-Star Squadron. Ted fought as Starman off and on for decades, while other heroes from various backgrounds also co-opted the name. As the Starman series proper began, Ted finally passed the mantle to his oldest son, David, who was promptly assassinated by Kyle, the son of Ted's arch-foe, the Mist. The Mist was quickly succumbing to dementia and sought to vanquish his old enemy and his city. 
With David dead and Ted injured in an explosion, it fell upon Ted's youngest son, Jack, to reluctantly pick up the mantle of Starman and save the city. Jack had often scoffed at his father's legacy, instead embracing the work of his mother, Adele Doris Drew, an artist. When her wing of the local museum was threatened, it strengthened Jack's resolve to go into action if Starman. The Shade worked behind the scenes to infiltrate the Mist Gang, and with the help of a family of cops named the O'Dares, he stopped their campaign to destroy his beloved Opal. The O'Dares were the children of Billy O'Dare, a beat cop who aided Ted as Starman in his younger days. Both Jack and Kyle came into possession of Ted's cosmic technology. Jack avenged his brother by murdering Kyle in battle. This resulted in Kyle's formerly insecure and nebbish sister Nash having a psychotic break, one that resulted in an aggressive and dangerous personality emerging. He vowed revenge on Jack and his family. Jack agreed to continue on as Starman when necessary if his dad worked to develop his cosmic energy technology to better mankind. Jack chose to forgo his father's costume, instead opting for a leather jacket, badge, and anti-flare goggles. His father modified one of his larger cosmic staffs for Jack's use. Jack, a collector and dealer in pop culture, antiques, and memorabilia, ventured out of the city into Turk County, where he encountered a troupe of carnival performers under the thrall of a demon named Bliss. Jack defeated Bliss and freed the enslaved performers, including a mute blue alien named Mikhail Thomas, who had also once been known as Starman. Jack took the amnesic Mikhail to Ted and later brought him the resurrected JSA foe Solomon Grundy, now reborn as a childlike innocent instead of a raging monster. Opal once again came under attack from the mist, but this time it was Nash using her father's name and adopting his powers to turn immaterial. She laid siege to the city and attempted to murder everyone involved in Ted's first clash with her father. Jack later learned she was seeking the Victoria Cross medal her father had won in World War I. Jack was apprehended and woke up nude in Nash's hideout. She forced him through a gauntlet where he would slowly re reacquire his clothing and Starman gear. Meanwhile, Ted fought and defeated the radioactive Dr. Phosphorus, while Mikhail freed himself and Grundy from torture at the hands of Nash's men by tapping into the powerful gem embedded in his chest. He leveled one of Opal's most beautiful buildings in the process. Nash left Opal without achieving her goal, but promised Jack they would battle over and over again. Matt O'Dare, the dirty cop of the clan, learned that he was the reincarnation of Brian Savage, a.k.a. the Scalp Hunter, who was once sheriff of Opal in the late 1800s and a friend of the Shade. Matt vowed to amend his ways, and Shade agreed to help his old friend do so. Searching for clues about the Miss Metal led to Jack meeting his father's old JSA colleague, Wesley Dodds, a.k.a. Sandman. Jack was initially more impressed with meeting Dodds' longtime paramour, writer Diane Belmont, a personal hero of Jack's. Wesley had to don the gas mask and gun of Sandman once again, as he and Jack teamed up to solve a crime in New York City. During this case, Wesley dropped the bomb on Jack that his father had once had an affair with fellow JSA'er, the original Black Canary. While Clarence O'Dare was promoted to police liaison with Starman, the family became embroiled in the plots of a man named Merritt. He was an immortal who placated the demon who gave him eternal life by sending souls into a magical poster he possessed. When Matt O'Dare was pulled into the poster, first Shade, then Jack leaped in to save him. Their selflessness weakened the demon who allowed them to leave, and through their efforts, all the souls Merritt had stolen over the years were released into Opal City. After the explosion caused by his gem, Mikhail can once again speak, but doesn't remember his past. Grundy left after hearing Ted lament how a previous version of the Swamp Monster had killed his old friend, Sylvester Pemberton, a.k.a. Skyman, a.k.a. the original Star-Spangled Kid. Jack occasionally seeks the counsel of a psychic he encountered named Charity. It was at Charity's business that he first bumped into a woman named Sadie Falk. The two did not hit it off at first. Jack has mended fences with his brother David. In life, the two rarely got along, but in death, David has appeared to Jack multiple times, and the brothers have had strange adventures that Jack isn't certain are truly real or just some kind of dream. Okay, we'll take a quick break, then jump into our comics, starting with Starman Annual Number 1. You're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast is an exploration of the DC Comics character, the first superhero to use the name of the Vigilante. First published in Action Comics 42 in September 1941, amid comics' golden age and carried as a continuous feature, during those years the Vigilante was also a member of the Seven Soldiers of Victory and was one of the first DC heroes to appear on the cinema screen in his own serial. 
Reappearing in the Bronze Age, the Vigilante had a 1970s renaissance throughout the DC Universe. Greg Saunders, the Prairie Troubadour, leads a double life as a modern country and western musician, while also delivering justice throughout North America as a masked crime fighter, using the tactics and weapons of his rural Wyoming upbringing with his friends Billy Gunn and Stuff Leong, Many a nefarious scheme was foiled with six guns, ingenuity, a motorcycle, and a twirling lariat. Howdy, I'm Ranger Gord. Help me follow the trail of the vigilante on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Okay, we're back, and now we're going to discuss the first of our three comics, which, as Cindy said before, is Starman Annual Number 1 from 1996. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it was on sale October 9th, 1996. The theme of the DC annuals this year was Legends of the Dead Earth. Here's the description page that was featured in each comic bearing the trade dress. Earth is dead. Those who once might have called it home are long scattered to the endless stars. Then that scattering on a thousand different worlds by a thousand different ways, Earth's greatest legends live on. Legends of the Dead Earth. So that was on the title page of each, each annual that year. Uh, the painted cover by Craig Hamilton and Tony Harris depicts the shade looming over the images of Jack Knight, Prince Gavin, and Ted Knight, all star men, all flying upward. So what do you think of this cover? I mean, it, it conveys what it needs to. I mean, you can tell that the story is coming from within him. Yeah, yeah, it's really well done. I mean, Craig Hamilton and Tony Harris are are two great tastes that taste great together. So, I mean, it you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really sharp cover. So. I, we rarely have anything bad to say about the no, covers on uh-uh. Starman. They're all great. The different degree. So, uh, the story was just called Legends of the Dead Earth. James Robinson was the writer in the framing sequences with the shade. Craig Hamilton was the penciler. Ray Snyder, the inker. The Prince Gavin sequence was illustrated and inked by Brett Blevins. The Ted Knight sequence was drawn by J.H. Williams III and inked by Mick Gray. Kevin Somers was the colorist. Bill Oakley, the letterer. Chuck Kim, assistant editor. And Archie Goodwin, the editor. On a small planet covered by one opulent city, the worldwide leader, Guardian, once known to us as the Shade, tells a group of children legends of heroes he knew of on an old earth. All these men were once called Starman. He begins with the tale of Prince Gavin, the foppish heir to Throne World, determined to bypass his planet's barbaric tradition of sentencing the other members of the royal family to death when one is chosen. But Gavin wasn't chosen, and his sister fulfilled her royal obligation throwing her brother out into space. He died but was revived by a mysterious being known as Mentor, who told him of the great power he held within him. Mentor trained Gavin to use this power. Armed with gauntlets to control his amazing abilities, Gavin took on the masked identity of Starman and protected his home world from internal and external threats, never revealing he was their dead prince. When his sister died, he claimed the throne, dissolving the empire his family once ruled, and bringing an air of peace to their planet. But it was short-lived because a great crisis loomed. Gavin was forced to leave his beloved wife, Miria, behind and don the guise of Starman once more. He flew into the antimatter void and discharged all of his great power. The antimatter wall vanished with him. The people of Throne World believed their savior had succeeded, but the Shade knew that it was the heroes of Earth who had stopped the crisis. Gavin was merely a few seconds too quick to respond. Had he just waited a moment longer, he would have lived happily ever after in this kind of story one of the young children begged Shade to tell. He then addresses a young boy named Lawrence Dare and tells him of the legacy of his police family. In the mid-20th century, on Old Earth's Opal City, his ancestor Billy O'Dare ran afoul of a villain called the Prairie Witch who killed several of his fellow officers. Ted Knight, the original Starman, was asked by his police contact Red Bailey to find Billy and another policeman captured by the Prairie Witch. After prepping in his observatory lab, Ted confronted the witch, was shot down and captured. He revealed to young Billy O'Dare he let himself be captured in an effort to find him. With the other cop dead, Starman began to enact his plan. Stripped of his cosmic rod, he pulled a hidden circuitry from his cape and used it to turn O'Dare's nightstick into a makeshift version of his weapon. With Billy's aid, Starman takes out the witch and her crew in the middle of another robbery. Ted is surprised to find the witch's flying broom is just that and that perhaps she is indeed a supernatural creature of some sort. Billy pledges to always be available when Starman needs its help. Shade has to confess that neither Billy or Ted had happy endings. Despite being a good cop, Billy was a bad drinker, 
and alcohol eventually claimed him. Ted suffered from nervous breakdowns due to his contributions to the atom bomb. His acts as Starman were often not enough to clear his conscience. The children ask about Ted's son Jack and other Starman he's told them of before. Shade flashes to their adventures but chooses to tell those stories another day. He assures the children that theirs is a happy ending on their new world. So what did you think of this comic? Oh, I liked it. I mean, I like these little slices of, you know, here's this story, here's this story, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I seem to remember not really caring for most of the annuals this year, uh, but this one was far and away the best one that I remember. Mm. Yeah. I mean, some of them were really just kind of strange. and But, you know, leave it to James Robinson. He he participated in events, but also bypassed them in, <laughs> thematically one way or the other. Uh, so what did you think of the art in the framing sequence by Craig Hamilton? It's one of those cases, kind of like um, Jay and Brett. You know, you can find little details that add to the story within. Yeah, so. it, it's very ornate. Uh, he famously drew the 1986 Aquaman miniseries, the one where he's got the ca camouflage costume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and because he works so intricately, his comic output has been surprisingly minimal. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, he does several issues of Starman, including another one we'll cover this episode. Uh, but it, it is, it's gorgeous, but I mean, sometimes it is like, it is kind of overwhelming. You've kind of got to reset your brain mm -hmm. to like, okay, I, I'm, you know, like you, this time you're doing the main story and the next time you're doing the out at exterior. Parts. Right. You almost have to go like and read it twice mm -hmm. to, to like, like get the, get the, like the broad strokes and then go back for the detail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Immortal Shade being a benevolent planetary leader is a nice extrapolation of the evolving character we see in the monthly book. So I thought that was a nice that was a nice touch that he was, you know, he had his own planet now. So uh, that little girl was a bit of a baby, though, with her happy ending demands, I will say. Well, you know. <laughs> uh, Prince Gavin was probably the first Starman I ever really encountered. I don't think I really met Ted until All-Star Squadron because he wasn't in any of the All-Star or Adventure comics I had with the JSA. Uh, Prince Gavin had a strip written by Paul Levitz and drawn by Steve Ditko that ran from Adventure Comics number 467 through 478 in 1980. There he wore the red and yellow costume you see in the flashbacks. Uh, his story wrapped up with a team up with Superman and DC Comics Presents number 36, written by Levitz, but penciled by Mr. Cosmic himself, Jim Starlin. Mm. They battled Starlin's second dark side clone, after Thanos, Mongol, and Starlin gave Starman that rather bland blue version of his costume, which we see in the the quote-unquote present of this story. And I wish he'd switch back to the red, because mm -hmm. that's a better costume. I mean, it's just a more dynamic. It's not the one on the cover, you know. It's it's just a much nicer costume. I mean, the blue is just like a really simple variant of the red. Yeah. So, um, I've always loved Brett Blevins' work. He's probably best known for runs on New Mutants, Sleepwalker, and Batman Shadow of the Bat. But he ended up doing work on the DCAU shows, Superman the Animated Series, The New Batman Adventures, Batman Beyond, Static Shock, Justice League, and Justice League Unlimited, which, of course, we cover mm -hmm. on JLU Cast. Batman the Brave and the Bold, and the Batman vs. Two-Face animated movie. And Prince Gavin appears on JLU. He just never speaks. Right. I mean, he's just there. Yep. They made action figure of him, though. Yeah. So. Yeah. True. <laughs> uh, Robinson does a great job of making us care about Gavin and Maria in just a few pages. I mean, I thought that was a really nice setup for their their romance. And it's very... Of course, the story is very, very bittersweet. Mm -hmm. You know? And... It just makes it sting that much more when you realize he did. He died for. He didn't have to die no. if he just waited a few more minutes. He, you know, the crisis literally would have just went away, right? And he would have been alive. So, Shay tells the little girl that Maria did find love later after many years, but she's not old enough to hear that story. So, Ooh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the O'Dare police legacy carried on far, far in the future on another planet. Is that too much of a stretch? You see people carry on. Now, you know, I wonder why they dropped the O part of the O'Dare. I don't know. I guess, yeah, that's a good point. I just, maybe Dare just sounds more like a space name, like Adam Strange or something like that. I don't know. Buck yeah. Rogers or something. I don't, I don't know. But uh, we move on to the tale of Bill and Ted. Uh, drawn by, <laughs> drawn I'm by, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Most excellent. <laughs> yeah. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Drawn by J.H. Williams III and Mick Gray, Williams is probably best known 
for his work on Kate Kane's early Batwoman adventures. So this is like early on that this is like one of the first times I remember encountering his art. The Prairie Witch is a modern creation, but she has a certain old school pre-code vibe about her, mm -hmm. comic code vibe about her. She's got fishnets, so I'm sure Ryan is a fan of her. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. You know. Uh, her skin is colored a light olive green, but her features kind of make it seem she may be African-American. Did you catch that, or did you think that, or is it just me? I think it, I, mean, I didn't hmm. see that. I, I would think that, but that would make her an even more interesting villain, because, you know, in the Golden Age, that wasn't happening. You no. Know, at, at D.C. in the 40s, so... Uh, she ends up killing three cops, the last in a ritual sacrifice. So that's a pretty gruesome. I stuff. wonder why she went with the Prairie Witch. You know, I don't know because you know they're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I guess I don't know because of the maybe the whole weirdness of Turk County out in the county. I don't know. You know, I don't. I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah. It, but that 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 title does just calling her that gives it creates kind of evokes some ideas almost like a Blair Witch type thing mm -hmm. in your head you know or the Bell Witch or well you know what I think about the Blair I know Witch. what you think of the Blair Witch dumbest thing ever the movie I you can't stand but you gotta admit that documentary oh yeah the documentary was really cool the movie I I got that come out of that theater ticked off yeah I know <laughs> uh, <laughs> Red Bailey was established as Ted's Commissioner Gordon type character. Uh, now Clarence is that for Jack in the mm -hmm. modern comic. Uh, I like how Ted is interested in the science behind the witch's flying powers. And then it turns out it ain't science. Mm -mm. Mm. So, And we'll see that Ted, you know, of course, Ted's on a team. I mean, think about it. He's on a team with Dr. Fate and the Spectre. Right. Which brings up, our, again, our our running conversation on these shows. Right. Is why it, are they always amazed? Why, like, why are they amazed by magic when they're like literally teammates and friends with Magical yeah. beings, yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Billy's point about Ted's plan being pretty reckless, and she may have just killed him. Uh, yeah, he's right. I mean, his whole plan was that he wanted to be captured so he could find Billy. And he tells him he was, you know, he took a chance because because Billy took that chance mm -hmm. and, and jumped on the back of her van to avenge his friends and track her down. But it was like, yeah, dude, what if she just like put a bullet in your head or something? Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so, um, I like that Ted was able to change the nightstick into a cosmic rod. It kind of works with what we know of the science since he creates different rods and staffs and the Star Spangled Kid's belt mm -hmm. later on, which is what Kyle uses when him and Jack fight. And uh, as we mentioned, when they have their, their final battle there. Uh, Billy pledges his loyalty to Starman, but at first asked him to go drinking. So, yeah, Billy's got a problem. Yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, the kids ask about Jack, Mikhail, Will Payton, and someone named Danny Blaine. I think this is the first time we hear that name in the series. More on him down the road. Mm -hmm. But he's a star man we don't know about yet. As Shade reminisces, Hamilton draws images of Ted and David Knight, Will Payton, Mikhail finding the calculator, Charity, Grundy, the Golden Age Flash, a pirate flag, Eclipso, Nash, and some figure that may be another Starman or Adam Strange, I you can't really tell. Uh, Jack is even seen fighting a samurai, which I believe is from that graphic novel that Robinson and Harris still occasionally talk about doing. Right. They never did get around to doing it. So I don't know if they ever will, but but yeah. Leave it to Robinson to use a what-if or Elseworlds-like theme to actually lay groundwork for stories in both the present, the past, and the present. And that's why this is his masterpiece of a book. Yeah. So, yeah, this whole series. This whole series, yeah. So let's move along to Starman number 28, cover dated March 1997, on sale January 22nd, 1997. This Times Past cover, painted by Tony Harris, depicts Mikhail in 1970s attire with a lava lamp and pills on a table in front of him. Off to the right is the head of another blue alien smoking a cigarette. In between them, the image of the two in combat with Mikhail in his Starman uniform. At the bottom right, someone sneaks up on Mikhail with a needle. What do you think? Uh, yeah, this is, I mean, it's a great, another great Tony Harris cover. It's a really busy cover, but, I mean, your eye immediately goes to Mikhail, like, in the lava lamp, in the yeah. lava lamp, and then you kind of just soak up the rest. I mean, that's what's important, is, is him sitting there with the lava lamp. So, it, you know, 
it it works. The other blue alien in their battle is hazy, which makes sense because the pills. Yeah. So, yeah. A Tale of Times Past, 1976. Super Freaks and Backstabbers. <laughs> That's a great title. Uh, James Robinson was the writer, of course. Craig Hamilton, the artist. Ray Snyder, the inker. Oakley, NJQ, were the letterers. Gregory Wright, the colorist. Chuck Kim, the assistant editor. And Archie Goodwin, the editor. Mikhail Thomas, or Michael Thomas, as he's now known, snorts cocaine in the bathroom of an Opal City discotheque named La Bump. <laughs> Rattled by the earth drugs he's become addicted to, Mikhail can barely remember the events that brought him to Earth or his time defending it. He does remember that he was given the name Snarman thanks to a song by David Bowie. Mikhail takes to the dance floor to the delight of the other partiers, then, crashing from his high, sets at a secluded table. There he is joined by another alien from his world, a man named Komok. He has come to finish his mission and kill the traitorous Mikhail, who fought against their world's planned invasion of Earth. Komok reminds Mikhail of his past. How he was the only warrior able to control the sonic crystal he wears as a necklace. How he fell in love with a woman named Liza, who was against the invasion of Earth and turned Mikhail to her side. Liza was killed for her treason, but Mikhail carried on her work, stopping the invasion force and defeating every agent from their world sent to destroy him. He encountered the original Green Lantern and the Martian Manhunter, but then the adventure stopped, and in search of a high, Mikhail retreated into earthly vices. Komok then reveals the fate of their world. Also at war with the planet Daxum, the scientists of Komok's world developed a doomsday device to destroy it, but an officer in the Dark Star Galactic Police Force used it to destroy the aggressor's world instead. The others left on the planet's moon base near Earth either killed themselves or fled to the stars. Komok and Mikhail are the last of their people. Komok came to Earth to finally kill Mikhail, but he too succumbed to the temptations of Earth. But his pleasure was Earth and women. Unfortunately, he caught herpes, deadly to their race. With only an agonizing death before him, he seeks final combat with his quarry. He places a small flight simulator device in front of Mikhail. The Starman remembers it now, but Komak tells him if they used it combined with Earth's drugs, the formerly virtual results become very real. The two take the pills and begin a battle in their minds. Mikhail ultimately proves victorious, blasting Komak with a sonic crystal and then snapping his neck in the mental plane. Back in his body, Mikhail sees Komok's dead husk. He also noticed the sonic crystal is now lodged in his chest, a part of his body. He considers staying in Opal and becoming a champion again, but then there's that party in the next score. Before he can decide, he is abducted by men and drugged. In his journal, the Shade writes of his disappearance and laments never getting to know this new Starman. In the present, Jack Knight reads the journal and tries to reconcile the timeline with what he knows of his friend Mikhail's abduction by the demon Bliss. Where was Mikhail for those 12 years in between? So how about this one? There's really only, I mean, it's one of those things. It's really weird. The one part of this story that I had an issue with is where, I mean, Komok isn't even getting getting the whole story out about, here, take these pills and we'll fight. He just picks them up and chugs them out, you know, chugs them down, you know, yeah. chugs the pills down. I'm like, dude, he might just be killing you, <laughs> you know? But I mean that. I mean, you know, the kind of lifestyle he's living. Well, true. true. I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's it's not every day you see your hero snorting cocaine in the first panel. Yeah. So you know, it's. And I also wonder what happened that made the the symbol go into his chest because it shows him coming back down. Yeah. And there's the um, chain part still there. And yeah. Then, you know, I just wonder what happened. Yeah, it's because he blasted it because he was like. It was because of the drug and the simulator in the middle. I don't. I don't know. But in the the current stories, you know, he's got it in his chest. Mm -hmm. So um, Mikhail says no one comments much on his blue skin. They think it's cool. Plus, they live in the DCU where weird stuff has been going on since the late 1930s. So, right. I guess uh, we covered Mikhail's origins when he first appeared in the series way back on Supermates. But basically, all you need to know before this series is one and only appearance. Uh, was an adventure in DC's 70s tryout series, first issue special number 12, cover date in March 1976. He was created by Jerry Conway and Mike Vosberg. Uh, so the dates of that issue line up with this one pretty well. Uh, we have Craig Hamilton's intricate art again, and I think it really works well here. He captures the look, the hair, the fashions of the time mm -hmm. just perfectly. Is, is Mikhail actually making a starlight on his finger with his powers while he's travolting? You know, right. you know, it's like it's like the ding, 
<laughs> like up at the, like, I don't know if it's just like a reflection off one of the disco balls. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. It 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 kind of it kind of could be read either way. Uh, this mimics the the uh, the pose of Saturday Night Fever, of course. Mm-hmm. And he has on John Travolta's classic Saturday Night Fever white suit and black unbuttoned shirt. But maybe he inspired that look because this is 1976 and Saturday Night Fever came out in 1977. So I don't know. So maybe maybe John Travolta copied him. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. And I just want to say this as a female: these guys, and you see old guys do this. These people that these men that go around with their shirt unbuttoned down to their navel, that is not a good look. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's known. I saw this old guy the other day, and he's probably like 65 or 70. And we were in the pharmacy at Walmart. I mean, and I was like, ew, cover it up. <laughs> he's staying alive, man. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> When Mikhail sits down, a friend reminds him of a woman he has slept with that he's already forgotten. He mentions the party at Carmen's, and all Mikhail cares about is if his dealers will be there. Do you think this guy is hitting on him a bit, the guy that's, that sits down with him? Because he seems put out when Mikhail asks about other guys. I think it's just one of those cases that he's like, you really pay attention to me. <sighs> well, see, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That, you know, I kind of wonder. Because, mm. yeah, I don't know. Homak is equally stylish with his bald head, Fu Manchu mustache, and short sleeve black shirt and purple vest and pants. So oh yeah, styling, profiling. These guys are these guys are very styling. Uh, they never say the name of Mikhail's uh, planet, but it's revealed to be Talok Three later on. The Talakites aren't dead, but colonized Talok Four and Five. There's a Sinestro Corps member named Liza Drac introduced in the mid two thousands. And the Legion of Superheroes member Shadow Lass also comes from this race. So, you know, connect all blue-skinned aliens mm-hmm. is basically what it amounts to. So. Oddly enough, Comac's planet has a name for Earth that he repeats over and over, mm-hmm. Meridian. Mm-hmm. So they don't name their own planet, but they name Earth. When, so. Well, you know, third planet from the sun is about midway between the sun. And, I guess so, yeah. You know, that might, I mean, I know it's not, you know what I meant. Yeah, know. I got you. We see in the flashback montage that Mikhail ran into Alan Scott and also John Jones. I like that at this point, DC was saying Jean was actually active in the years before Superman and company debuted. He was just way under the radar. Right. Which ties into the early Martian Manhunter stories where it was mostly, he was mostly Detective John Jones mm-hmm. that would just occasionally, you know, show his Martian form. It was usually just like hovering over them just for a visual to say, hey, remember, he's a Martian. So, uh, of course, Daxam is the planet where Mon-El slash Valor came from. They are essentially like Kryptonians. So, lots of Legion connections here. Uh, interesting that Robinson went with the Dark Stars instead of Green Lanterns, but considering that this space cop blows up a planet, uh, well, we've had enough of Green Lanterns doing that. Thank you very much. The way they ruined Jon Stewart in the comics. So, you know, we don't, yeah. we don't need that. Yeah. No. So, what did you think about Comac dying of herpes? Well, I mean, it's basically like the same thing as Native Americans dying of smallpox. Yeah, I guess you know? so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if your body is not used to the things that are out there, that's what's going to happen. I mean, that, you know. Yeah, I mean, how many, there's been different, you know, stories like, you know, the aliens like in War of the Worlds, they can't survive in the environment, E.T. can't, mm-hmm. but this guy's dying of herpes, so that's kind of, kind of interesting. Is it just me, or is there some sexual tension with Mikhail and Comac? I mean, he grabs his face and it almost looks like they're going to kiss. And Mikhail even later compares their battle to sex, saying this stark game of heat and skin against skin is no different. So, yeah, there's some, there's definitely something going on there. Mm. You didn't see that? I, I don't think, I don't think it's sexual tension. I mean, I think it's more like this is somebody that's from my planet. This is somebody, and I'm going we're gonna have to fight to the death. Mm. Yeah. Well, Robinson will later reveal Mikhail is bisexual, so I just kind of read that into it too. Mm. Okay. So. It might it might be you know makes sense though, but this is where he gets the crystal in his chest as you as you commented. Yeah. But someone uh, I don't know if it's Robinson or it's the letterer or if it's the editors, but someone makes the dreaded Jay Garrett mistake again. Come on, people! Anybody working on a comic as benched in Golden Age DC lore as this should get the name Jay Garrick, I C K, right? Not. 
G-A-R-R-E-T-T. Mm-hmm. It's I-C-K. Mm-hmm. G-A-R-R-I-C-K. I mean, come on, people. You know, it's like, God, that ha- that's happened several times in Starman comics. So it's like, ugh. I can't say I care for Craig's version of Jack in that last panel. I kind of feel like at this point, no one can draw Jack but Tony Harris, really. He looks too much like a slob when he's eating a pizza in the last panel here. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know. Well, I mean, it, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, but overall, this is an interesting issue, and Robinson does a great job of placing us in the time and putting us in a Studio 54-type environment with aliens. And, of course, there's a bit of David Bowie mm-hmm. in Mikhail anyway, which works because I'm pretty sure that David Bowie really was a cool alien. So. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> they just beamed him back home, I think. <laughs> well, what was it in The, um, the Hunger? Yeah, yeah, he, he was, was a vampire. A, yeah. He was a vampire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll take another quick break, and then we'll jump back into Starman number 29, the jumping on issue. Hey, Ryan, I know we're taking a break from Batman Nightcast, but I've been thinking about the Nightfall storyline, where Jean-Paul Valley temporarily took over the role of Batman. I see where you're going with this. If you were ever paralyzed, I would be honored to take care of Cindy and your kids. Uh, no, that's not where I was going. I was thinking about all the many characters who have filled in for Bruce Wayne as Batman over the years. Dick Grayson, Tim Drake. Commissioner Gordon, for some reason. Yeah, that did happen. Anyway, on the subject of temporary replacements. Your son Andrew is going to take over Supermates? No. Focus on Batman. Why is this so hard? While we're away from Nightcast for a while longer, someone could come in and do a Batman-related show for the Fire and Water Network. Well, I know Paul Keen loves the Batman Family comic book. I've seen Sean M. Myers post a few things about Batman Family, too. Do you think they... We'll do it! For those of you who aren't familiar with the series, Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978, and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man-Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. So you're all invited to the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, taking over the Batman Nightcast feed. Coming in January to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This could be the sensational podcast find of 2022. Okay, we're back from break, and as we said, we're going to cover Starman number 29 from April 1997. It was on sale February 12th, 1997. The painted cover by Tony Harris resembles a Russian propaganda poster. There is an Art Deco frame. On the opposite side of the DC bullet is the Zodiac star symbol that Jack wears on the back of his jacket. In the center, in front of Mikhail, who is radiating light, stands the shade. Jack with the cosmic staff and Matt O'Dare with cigarette and gun. Below and slightly in front of them is Grundy in bibbed overalls and Ted Knight reading a pulp magazine featuring him in his Starman costume on the cover. Star flags abound in the background. So how about this one? This is a great jumping on issue. It gives you all of the big points, all the big players in the whole Starman series. Yeah. And they're right there. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is a great cover. I mean, this was using a lot of ads. I think they put out a poster of it. Um yeah, it's, it's probably one of the iconic covers of the series. Um, Starman had become a critical darling, and DC wanted to give readers a chance to hop on board, and they pulled out all the stops with this issue. Uh, this would actually be a great cover for, like, a complete series volume. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. We have those Shade Journals pages that we read from before, or paraphrased before, with Harris's pencil portrait uh, portraits of Jack, Shade, and Wes and Diane with Sandman looming behind them. Then we're off to the story, which is called The Return of Bobo. Uh, James Robinson, of course, was the writer again. Tony Harris was the penciler. Wade Von Graubadger. Von Graubadger was the inker. Greg Wright, colors. Oakley NJQ, letters. Chuck Kim, assistant editor. Archie Goodwin was, of course, the editor. A large, white-haired man in a sharp suit drinks at Club Cobana, lamenting that it's not like it used to be when Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Tony Bennett played there. He introduces himself to the bartender as Jake Benetti, and the bartender knows that name. He knows Benetti was a plainclothes supervillain and successful bank robber. He also remembers him having a nickname, but Jake isn't fond of that. He relates that he fought Dr. Midnight, the Human Bomb, and Starman, but it's when he returned to Opal after battling Dr. Fate that his luck ran out. 
Finding his wife in the arms of another man, in a fit of superpowered rage, he killed them both. He turned himself in and has been in prison ever since. Now he's thinking about seeing if he still has what it takes. At Ted Knight's observatory home, Jack shares a letter he received from the new Miss, Nash. She tells Jack she is sorry she missed their scheduled rematch, but she was busy giving birth to their child, sired while Jack was an unconscious captive. Naming the child Kyle after her brother, whom Jack killed, and her father, she also gave him the middle name of Theo after Ted. But she tells Jack she will raise him to hate his father. She warns Jack that while she is enjoying traveling with their son, she will soon return and kill more of Opal's citizens. After reading this, Ted joins a visibly distraught Jack in a quiet sit-down. In a park, Clarence and Hope O'Dare approach Benetti and ask if the rumors are true about him robbing a bank. He is uncertain, but he knows another O'Dare, Mason, has been tailing him. At Charity's fortune-telling shop, she asks about Mason, whom she believes she is destined to be with. She reads Jack's future and sees his trip to the stars, his meeting with those of thunder and the lightning, and something she never saw before, his son. She tells Jack that one day he will know his son and hold his hand. The O'Dares continue to watch Benetti from nearby rooftops, as do the trio of starmen, Jack, Ted, and Mikhail. Jack brings up that they are missing the late David and Will Payton, but Ted points out that the starman of the 1950s and the alien starman he learned of through the grapevine via Alan Scott. Benetti invites Mason to join him, since he has to tell him anyway. The two walk and talk through the section of Opal known as the alleys, and the subject of Jack comes up. Benetti likes what he hears about Jack being obsessed with old things. After visiting the site of the old oyster bar where he met his beloved wife, Benetti walks with Mason back to the city proper and then tells him he's going to rob Opal's security and savings. Feeling he can't fit in on the outside, he tells Mason he hopes he doesn't get hurt, then flicks him unconscious. As Jack and the O'Dares move in, Benetti enters the bank. As he announces the holdup, he notices someone else had the same idea. The Royal Flush Gang. As Jack flies in, Benetti is none too happy being upstaged by a bunch of costume creeps. Despite himself, he finds himself joining Jack in battling them. Benetti thinks that his wife is telling him to do something right to redeem them both. Starman and Bobo Benetti mop the floor with the gang, and later they both relate how Jake was given a job as the head of security for the bank in all of its branches in Opal. So, is this a good jumping-on story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, it, it gives you everything you need to know to just jump into the series and keep going. Yeah, I, I think it works really well without being too obvious. I mean, yeah, the characters are introduced a bit more formally than normal, and old plot lines are touched on more. But overall, if you didn't know this was a special issue, you just think it was a nice slice of life issue. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Jake Benetti is an original creation here, but he feels real. More like a 50s, 60s villain than a 40s one, though. But I don't know. The way he talks and stuff, I'd say late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. To me, not 60s. Yeah, maybe early 60s. Yeah. Very early 60s. But, yeah. Uh, there's I disagree. A, yeah, okay. There's a rather <laughs> large typo on page two. Jake says... You ever get an inkling to fight a supervillain, a word to the wise, stay clear of the magical ones. He's referring to Dr. Fate, so that should have been a superhero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love the look of the bartender's face when he asks, you going to rob a bank? He's like, he look, he's got this look like, oh, ooh, juicy. Yeah. Spill the tea. You know, yeah. <laughs> As Danny says, spill the tea. Yeah. Uh, so that letter from Nash. Oh, boy. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, finding out later that... You know, you were raped, and now that your your arch enemy has had a child with you, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> but I have to wonder: would that even work if Jack was unconscious? Could you know he sire a child like that? I mean, how does that? Well, I they, mean, if you were, I mean, I guess as long as he was, you know, <laughs> yeah. according, we don't know how unconscious he was. Maybe he was just like in a like in, in a, a fog. dream state, yeah, yeah, a fog. So yeah. Um, Ted's like, uh, when did you, her, you and her, uh, and he's just like, keep reading. Because yeah. <laughs> he was like, wait a minute, you two? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, Harris draws the hell out of Jack and Ted's expressions on these pages. You can just feel the stinging tears in Jack's eyes as he's trying not to start bawling. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, he's already, and he's teared up bad. And I like Ted's like, whew, I think I need to sit down too. Um, I like, so the O'Dares just walk up. To Benetti and, hey, are you going to rob a bank? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That seems a little bit unconventional, but uh, 
Uh, at least he has fond memories of their dad, even if he did help him send him up the river for years. They had a drink later, he says. Yeah, of course. Which ties into Deli O'Dare, as we established previously. Uh, Being a functioning alcoholic. Yeah. They mentioned Jake's incredible strength. He even defeated Iron Monroe, the Superman analog, and the Young All-Stars. And Negative Man, which seems to want to place the Doom Patrol in a period before the Justice League formed. I know. I was wondering about the timeline there. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I don't know. They... they they were kind of playing fast and loose with the timelines back then. Like they kind of wanted to keep some of the characters who, who weren't like, like kind of on the periphery. They wanted to let them kind of fill in the gaps as Mm -hmm. the timeline slid further and further away. You know, like, you know, you had to like keep, keep the JLA young, you know, that we got to fill in that gap somewhere. He described Green Lantern as the old one with blonde hair and broad shoulders. Now that was a fight. Robinson really liked Alan Scott, and he raised his game level. Well, you know, Alan Scott... He's one of our favorite Green Lanterns, yeah. You know, in the Golden Age, he made, like, Alan Scott like the big guy. Mm-hmm. You know, without Superman in the story, he's the big guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jack's visit with Charity is very prophetic. I won't spoil things for folks who didn't read the whole series, but let's just say she is good at her job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Robinson just keeps really good notes. Robinson's good at his job. <laughs> yeah. He didn't, he didn't, uh, yeah, he remembered that. He put a pin in it and remembered it. Uh, the scene with the O'Dares seemed the most gratuitous of the jump-on add-ins. Clarence laughing at them and then hugging them was kind of a little a little much, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But Barry never says much. He's, yeah. he's kind of the, even though, even though Matt's the black sheep of the family, really Barry's the one that, like, doesn't have much of a character uh-huh. developed at this point, so. Uh, which might be important later, so. Uh, Ted brings up the Starman of the 50s, which we'll later call the Starman of 1951. Then he talks about Prince Gavin, although he doesn't know his name. He says he thinks Superman met him, or maybe Valor, uh, which is mon This is Robinson having a dig at the Superman office for constantly saying Superman's pre-crisis involvement in the DCU didn't necessarily happen as published, and a lot of it was foisted off on mon slash Valor. Yeah. And they never could decide. Like, it changed, like, every Story to story, yeah. Yeah. Jack mentions the alleys are his part of Opal, and Macau remembers some battles there, the one with Martian Manhunter and another with Felix Faust, which again is kind of fudging that JLA timeline. Exactly. But So how about Jake asking Mason to walk with him? I mean... And, I, I don't know, he's like, eh. Uh, but he knows he can take him out anytime he needs to. He's like, eh, come along, you know, I just want some company. Yeah, and, but Mason's in other stories is supposed to be practically mute. He's pretty talkative here. I know. That is, you know, he's supposed to be the quiet one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the story about Jake and his wife meeting at the oyster bar is very bittersweet. I mean, Robinson paints a picture, but knowing Jake killed her in a fit of rage makes it very, very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Harris often draws things in an odd way, but when Jake, Flicks Mason, his chin, I know his chin seems to be melting off. It does. I, I mean, I was like, um, is he elastic man suddenly? What's it, going on here? Maybe the colorist was supposed to make that look like spittle or blood, or but it looks like his like flesh is melting off, which is kind of weird. Clarence is getting confused with his officers on the walkie-talkie, telling him costume villains have entered the bank, and you know it's a nice preview of what's to come because mm-hmm. you have no idea. Now note that Jake pushes over a guard and says. All right, this is a holdup. Don't anyone panic. And and then the Royal Flush Gang is much more harsh and says, Freeze right there. This is a holdup. We're the Royal Flush Gang and we'll kill you all if you try anything. It's nice to show that Jake did things politely. Yeah. Back in his day. You know, he was a he was a gentleman's supervillain. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh very cosmopolitan. Yes. Jake's line, but I'm plenty mad at these cupcakes for queering up my gig is obviously homophobic. But it fits the period the man comes from, and Robinson's gay, so he was if he was okay with writing that, then right, it fits the character. It fits the character, yeah, yeah. And I kind of like that he kind of looks at the costume supervillains as like, ah, you bunch of sissies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> He's that type of guy, you know, that old type of guy. Jake takes out Ace, who is a robot, and has given the Justice League a lot of trouble. Yeah. So that you know, I do like. He said, "Well, I wish somebody told me this thing was a robot." So right. He- you get the feeling that maybe he was pulling his punches a little bit. At first. The, yeah. Yeah. I love the two panels of Jake and Jack having that moment smiling at each other. Jack has his tongue sticking out, and Jake just looks really happy about yeah. it. And Jack's kind of like, eh. You know? So <laughs> cool. 
Uh, Jack is shown talking to a woman. I think that's supposed to be Sadie. It's not Charity, I don't think. No. But we're not... A few issues from now, a little spoiler. Jack was like, are we dating now? And she's like, I don't know. But, that you know, they've kind of started, like, mm-hmm. like talking. So, yeah. Uh, one gripe, every panel of Jake on the last page is recycled from the first two pages. I don't know if that was always the intention or Harris got behind and they had to photostat the panels again. It works, but as an artist myself, I mean, I'm no Tony Harris by God, God by any means. But as somebody who's done comic book work, I you notice things like that, mm. you know. So uh, we get a preview of next month, Pirate Tales, and there's the Black Pirate. And in the months that follow, they of the Thunder and the Lightning, and we have the Marvel family of Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel, Captain Marvel Jr. Right. Back when we could call them that, so still call them that. So, <laughs> Ooh, so we did it. We're back in business in Opal City. What do you think? Yeah, I, I know. This, this is a good, you know, bring it together. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it won't take four or five years for us to return. We do have to get back to jail, UCAS, so it may be a few months. But, uh, but you know, hopefully we'll, we'll come back around here sooner than later. For more Starman discussion on the network this month, check out Zero Hour Strikes, where Cisco and Bass are going to talk about Starman number zero, along with other zero issues. That's a great show. We need to be checking it out anyway, but it definitely ties in this month to Justice Society Presents and the Starman Chronicles. So I know Siskoid's going to plug us there, so it's a nice little show crossover. So there you go. Thanks, guys. Uh, Be sure to leave us some feedback on fireandwaterpodcast.com. We'll read experts from them on the next Starman Chronicles episode. Extra special thanks to all the patrons of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. If you would like to support the network financially, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you can find many ways you can help keep the network going, including support levels that get you a special shout-out on the show of your choice, like Herman Lowe, Joshua Romano, Ted Kilvington, Joe Tonello, Keith G. Baker, and Alexander Osias. I think they're a society onto themselves, and they support Justice Society Presents. So thank you, folks. Thanks yes, very much. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, thanks again for listening to Justice Society Presents, the Starman Chronicles. We hope to see you around the Opal again soon. Until then, as Casey Kasem used to always say, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, folks, I'm sorry. I try. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>